favorite stories coming out of World War II involves this man, Jacob Deshazer. Anybody familiar with this particular fellow? He was in the U.S. Army, Air Force, Air Corps, whatever that was called when they were combined, serving in Oregon at the time the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. By spring, Deshazer was a bombardier in Jimmy Doolittle's squadron flying over Japan. They didn't do all that much damage, but they sent a message and lifted morale. The planes could not return. They could not hold enough fuel to return from where they started, so they had to fly actually past Japan and on to China to land. The plane that Nishazer was on actually ran out of fuel ahead of schedule. They had to bail out over Japan and Jacob spent the next 40 months in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. He was starved, he was beaten, he was abused repeatedly. Many of his fellow prisoners did not survive. Finally, when the war was over, he was freed. But before that happened, he was freed in another way. As he sat those many long months there in prison, Memories of long ago, as a child in Sunday school, came back to his mind. He couldn't get them out of his mind. and He asked his captors for a Bible. It took them two years. They finally, one of the guards gave him a Bible. And he began to read. He read of the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ as he prayed for those who crucified him. Jacob gave his life to Christ, and he became a free man even before he got out of prison, freed from his sin, freed from his hatred of the Japanese. Instead of hating them, before he left that prison yard, he learned to pray for his captors and witness to them even when it cost him much. After the war, he went to school for a while, and then of all things, God called him to be a missionary and sent him to Japan. He wrote a book entitled, A Prisoner of Japan, or something of that nature, and told his story. I think it was a portion of that book, or perhaps a tract based on that book, that was handed out across Japan telling the people there of Jesus Christ. On one particular occasion, a Japanese airman, a man by the name of Commander Mitsuo Fushida, was handed one of those tracks at a train station. Now, Fushida was the commander of all 360 planes that attacked Pearl Harbor. And because of what he read and the power of the Spirit, Fuchida became a Christian and went on to be an evangelist and preach the gospel to the Japanese people. 
Such is the grace of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God. That God could take a man like Jacob de Shazer or a man like Mitsuo Fuchida, who hated one another, joined together in the gospel, lives transformed, able to forgive one another. I tell you the story of Jacob de Shazer this morning to show you an example of a man who was transformed by the power of the Spirit and one who was obedient to the calling of God even to go and preach to his enemies. But long, long ago, there was another man who took a different route. His name is Jonah. And the book of Jonah is his story. Jonah was a prophet in Israel, the northern kingdom. The only prophesy, the prophecy we have recorded is in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. Other than that, all we have is this book. And we read in this book that in verse 1, the Lord said to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria was the enemy of Israel. The Assyrians and the Ninevites were well known for their cruelty. For their total lack of regard for other human beings. Complete almost depravity and immorality and evil. Evil personified. And these are the people that God wanted to send Jonah to. That he might preach to his enemy. But Jonah said, no, I don't think I want to do that. In verse 3, we read that Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What became the reality in Jacob de Shazer's life, we see the opposite in Jonah's life. And Jonah was a prophet, used of God, called of God, someone who should have knew better, but he made the wrong choice. Now, in all fairness, he didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make him a new creature, as we do in this dispensation. But still he knew he was doing the wrong thing. He could not bring himself to preach to his enemies. So he decided to run away from God. And that's the decision that every person makes when they choose sin over the service of God, when they choose sin over the obedience they should have to God's word. We run away. We run in the other direction. When what we should be doing is running toward God all the time, without exception, immediate obedience. Even Jesus Christ told us we ought to love our enemies. 
Speak well of those who curse us and do good to those who hate us. To pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jonah did none of these. Shazer, in the power of the Spirit, was able to do them all. For you and I, we must... Well, we must make a decision very often in life. Are we going to obey God or are we going to do what we would rather do? Are we going to be faithful to what God wants us to do or are we going to be governed by our sin nature and our desires? We may not ever be called to go and preach to our enemies. But we all have the opportunity to pray for our enemies and to speak well of those who mistreat us rather than speak ill of them. Yes, we do. We really do. We can do that or we can make excuses like Jonah did. And yes, he had some good excuses. So let's take a look at the story, at least the introduction to the story this morning. Here in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, we're going to discover two realities, two realities in regard to our relationship to God and our obedience to Him. Two realities that demand, demand that we do not run from God, but rather run to God. So that's the message we have before us in the Word this morning. Don't run from God. Why? Well, number one, there is no excuse for disobedience. Jonah had them, but the reality of it is there's no legitimate excuse for disobedience. There's no excuse for any level of disobedience. So let's ask the question as we think about this. Here's the question. Why would we want to avoid responsibility? Why is it sometimes we want to say no to God or run away from God? Why? Well, Jonah had some reasons that I think might be similar to ours. You see, God said to him, arise and and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Well, uh, Nineveh was a great city. Probably the largest city on earth in those days. Eight miles around the perimeter of its outer walls. A huge city full of immoral, evil people. And God said, go and preach to these people, Jonah. And Jonah didn't want to do it. He didn't want that responsibility. Why? Well, we've mentioned already of the fact that they were enemies of Israel. And there was a hatred, a natural born hatred in Jonah's heart. And a prejudice against these people. He didn't want them to have the word of God. He didn't want to be the one who preached the word of God to them. He didn't want to see them repent. And his hatred, I think, led to 
His anger, and I, I believe he got angry at God for calling him to go to Nineveh. Why else run, would he run away? Why else would he disobey? Beyond his hatred and beyond his anger, I think there was also the issue of pride. <laughs> you see, Nineveh wasn't exactly a prestigious assignment. Up until this point, God had never sent a prophet to another nation, especially not an enemy nation. Jonah didn't want to be the first one. I mean, <clears throat> could you imagine if he would have went and uh, then come home? Would he have been well known? Would he have been held up as a, a, a great preacher? No. He wasn't anybody in Israel wanted him to go either. Or that would have volunteered for the task. You see, if, if, if God would have said, Jonah, go to the king and deliver a message, a prophecy of the king, Jonah would have probably been right there. If, if God would have said, Jonah, I want you to go to a priest, or I want you to go to your, your fellow Israelites, or even down to Judah, Jonah probably would have been Johnny on the spot. But Nineveh? Not Nineveh. I, I, Jonah is it, I'm, I'm a prophet to Israel. That, that's where I should be. That's where people know me. That's where my, my, my ministry is accepted. And there's plenty of people in Israel I can preach to, Lord. But not Nineveh. That ran counter to Joseph's desire. And that's really what disobedience is always about, isn't it? It's not that we just want to disobey God. It's just we want something different for ourselves, our lives, whatever. But then I think there was another motivation as well. There's pride, and hatred, and anger. I think it was fear. Now, how do you know that? Well... Arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah, that great city, and cry against it. That's not exactly a good message that, uh, you know, garners a lot of uh, goodwill. <laughs> Can you imagine uh, going up here to RDU, getting on a plane, flying straight to Tehran, Iran. By the way, Nineveh was in modern-day Iran. Flying to Iran, getting off the plane, and, and, and finding one of those, you know, religious leaders over there... Khomeini, Khomeini, or one of them, or I don't know, and say, well, I'm here to preach the gospel. You guys are all sinners. Would you volunteer for that? Come on, we, we would all have a thought or two, a second thought or two about that assignment. I mean, Jonah could have went to Nineveh, but God didn't promise he was coming back. He just said, go. I mean, for all Jonah knows, his message is not going to be received, and they're just going to kill him. And they're probably going to make him suffer long and hard before they kill him. It's no wonder he wanted to go in the other direction. And just suppose, just suppose, as outlandish as it may have seemed to Jonah, just suppose the Ninevites received his message and repented. And he comes home and tells everybody, nobody's going to be happy. He's afraid that, you know, his, his ministry's over at that point. Fear, fear dominates. 
so much when it comes to disobedience. So there's that first question we have considered. Why why would anyone want to avoid responsibility? Well, you know, make the conversion over to your life. No, we're probably not going to get called to go preach the gospel in Iran, but uh, there's lots of things God expects. Lots of matters of disobedience for all of us every day. But here's another question. Why do you think Jonah thought running away would be the answer? It seems almost silly. I love to tell this story to my grandkids. Jonah tried to run away from God. Now you have to explain. You can't can't run away from God. It doesn't work. Jonah surely was smart enough to figure that out. He's a prophet. Why? What did he think was to be gained by trying to run away from his responsibilities? I think Joseph, I think Joseph was lying to himself. And here's how it works, because we do it too. Well, it's not that I'm going to be disobedient. I'm just going to make it really hard for myself to be obedient. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure I got, I got a really good excuse why I can't obey. And God will understand. Yeah, we lie to ourselves all the time. Nineveh was 500 miles east of Israel. Here's Israel. Nineveh is 500 miles northeast. Over here on the Tigris River. 500 miles. Long trip. Hard trip. Dangerous trip. I don't think that was the worst of it, though. That's part of it. Now, instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the exact opposite direction, west. He goes down to the seaport city of Joppa and he finds a Phoenician sailing ship. Now the Phoenician ships, they had two rows of oars on each side and one sail in the middle. And the Phoenicians were master sailors in those days. The the people from Israel were not. They were just, you know, that, that wasn't their thing. It's, it's, it's reasonable to think that Jonah had never been on a seagoing ship. But he goes down to Joppa. He pays the fare. He gets on the ship and they put him down in a cargo hold. Because it was a cargo ship. The, the Phoenicians were traitors. And it says, in verse 3, that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Well, Tarshish is 2,000 miles west. Let me give you a little more perspective on that. Over here on the far right, that's Nineveh. Here's Joppa, or Israel, in this area. Actually, Israel's down here, but Joppa's somewhere in there. Way over here, probably, on the sea coast of Spain, is the city of Tarshish. 
Although some, some Bible scholars think it might have been here on this island of uh, modern day, or I don't know if it's modern day, but it's labeled Sardino on the map here. Either way, it's a long, long ways. Now, what you understand, what we need to understand is this is the end of the world right here. Spain. And pretty much, you know, this is the end of the world over here. Jonah put just as much distance between himself and his responsibility as a man possibly could do. Now, that 500 miles along arduous trip that would take months, but this, this trip across the Mediterranean by sea, it could take months and months and months. And I, I've, I ran across one source that said it could have took, took a year, but sometimes they had to stop and wait for storms to pass and all that. Now, we also read this in verse 3. It says, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It cost him a lot of money. It wasn't a free ride. In fact, this whole plan to flee from God and to get as far away from his responsibility as possible was a very carefully thought out and well executed plan. He had to gather resources. He had to have the money. He had to travel to Joppa. He had to locate a ship. And, and so this Jonah does deliberately, step by step. What was he trying to do? He was trying to make it just as absolutely difficult as possible for God to use him in Nineveh. In fact, I think in mind, his mind probably worked this way. Well, you know, if God really wants somebody to go preach in Nineveh, and he probably wants them to get, get on uh, down the road to Nineveh, uh, he's going to have a hard time getting me there. And it's going to take a long time. Uh, God, God will just move on to somebody else, and he'll send somebody else, and yeah, problem resolved. Isn't that, isn't that what we say to ourselves all the time? Well, Lord, you want me to do what? Well, Lord, but you know, I think somebody else could do a better job. So, God isn't concerned about who's going to do the better job. He's concerned about the one he asked doing the job. Moses tried that. Remember that? Well, Mo, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. They won't believe me, God. All these same things had to have been going through Jonah's head. But Jonah figured, I'm going to be so far away. And, and God's not going to want to wait on me, even if I could get back. By the way, he probably spent his last dime on the fair, so probably Jonah's thinking, <laughs> I can't even get back if I wanted to go. I don't have the money. Interesting enough, God provided a free ride. If you know the rest of the story. God has a plan and our disobedience doesn't change God's mind, change God's plan, and it's not good for us if we try. Charles Swindoll in one of his books, I think it is uh, 
Strengthening Your Grip, I believe is the name of the book. And uh, he tells a story of sitting down and talking with an astronaut. The astronaut was uh, Charles Duke. Now, Duke had been to the moon, Apollo 16, drove the little rover, you know, the little four-wheeler around on the moon and such. And Swindoll talks about sitting down and talking, and, and, and it was more than just he and his wife there. It was a meal, a lot of conversation. Duke patiently answered all the questions. And finally, Swindoll says, I ask him this. He, he said, uh, once you were there, weren't you free to make your own decisions and carry out some of your own experiments? You know, sort of do as you pleased. Maybe, maybe stay a little longer if you liked. He said, Duke looked at him and said, Chuck, if I didn't want to return to earth, <laughs> do your own thing sometimes and you, you do it at your own peril. Well, Duke went on to explain the, the precise timing and the, uh, specific jobs he had to do in certain instances. Everything had to be precise, lift off at a per- certain time, certain moment. And, uh, any, any deviation from the plan, he wouldn't come home. This is exactly what Jonah was trying to accomplish, actually. He didn't want to go home. But you see, God can take care of it. I mentioned that free boat, uh, that free ticket home, not a boat ride, but a, a free ticket. It's a little different when God's in charge. Uh, NASA couldn't have done anything about it. Duke would have never made it home if he would have disobeyed. But God even can take our disobedience and turn it into something marvelous. So first of all, notice here that no excuse is good enough. There are no good excuses for disobedience. But there's a second reality I want you to notice here as well in our text, and that is this. You can't hide from God. You've heard it all your life. You can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) Well, that's, I don't know if it came from the story of Jonah or not, but the principle's here. You can run from God, but you can't hide. God will always know where you're at and what you're doing. Now, in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 10, we read this, and From the pen of David, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Speaking to God, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, sound like Jonah? Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David knew that God was omnipresent. God's everywhere. You can't run away from God. You can't remove yourself from God's presence, but that's what it seems like Jonah's trying to do. In fact, in verse 3, it says Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. At the end of verse 3, we read this. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Surely Jonah, a prophet, knew that he couldn't run away from God in the sense that he could somehow remove himself from the presence of God. Now, there's a lot of sinners that think they can. 
And there's going to be a lot of people on the day of judgment stand before God in the great white throne. And they're going to think their life has been successful. They have completely removed themselves from the thought of God. They have, they have relegated God as a non-existent entity in their mind. But yet now here they stand before him. And it's too late to do anything about their error. Surely Jonah knew he couldn't escape from the presence of God. Yes, I, I, I think he knew that. But what he is trying to do is escape from any reminder of the presence of God. Because that to him, even though he knew the reality, he knew the theology probably, he knew the truth, but he's lying to himself. You see, there is no, there's no tabernacle in Tarshish. There are, there are no priests in Tarshish. I, I don't suppose there were, was a single solitary prophet in Tarshish. Probably not even a believer in the God, the one God, the creator of this universe in Tarshish. They were all heathen, idol-worshipping pagans. But if Jonah's in Tarshish, he doesn't have to hear it. And he certainly doesn't have to worry about anybody reminding him that he's out of the will of God. In fact, he doesn't need to even be concerned about anybody confronting him because they don't care. You know, over the years, I've noticed this thing <clears throat> so many times. It works like this. Where's brother so-and-so? I haven't seen him for a while. Where's sister so-and-so? She hasn't been in church much lately. And we, we ask those questions for a reason, because we want to make sure everything's okay, care about each other. But so often, the... You run into this circumstance and they say, oh, nothing's wrong, everything's fine, you know, just been busy, you know, this and that going on. Excuses. And then, then after a while, the occasional attendance turns into hardly any attendance and then, you know, just, they're just gone. And then way down the road somewhere you find out why. Because their life took a turn away from God. They begin to disobey the Word of God, and live in sin. And you see, when you make that decision, it's just, just natural to want to separate yourself from the family of God, from the church of God, because then you don't have to hear the preaching of God. Then you don't have to answer to your friends who know God, who are concerned about you. You don't have to worry about being confronted by anybody or admonished. That's what it meant to Joseph to be apart from the presence of God. Now, every person that is born is born with a conscience. The conscience is something the Holy Spirit will obviously interact with, but the con you're born with a conscience. The conscience is the ability... To be able to make moral decisions. This is right, this is wrong. I do this, I feel guilty. I do this, I feel good. But what happens is, 
When people reject truth, when they reject God, or when they, they turn away from God, and they separate themselves from God's people and all the, anything that would remind them of God, they sear their conscience. Or they harden their conscience. In fact, there's a, there's a verse in, uh, the New Testament. First Timothy 4, 2. It says, sometimes people speaking lies in hypocrisy. Wait, wait, they, they, they think they're fooling everybody? When they're just hypocrites? Worst of all, they're, they're lying to themselves. Speaking lies in a hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You can damage your conscience by the decisions you make to the point your conscience doesn't work very well, if at all, over time. We're told in the New Testament that we as Christians can quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. And then in Ephesians 4.30, we're told that it's even possible to grieve the Spirit of God that indwells us by our choices and our actions. So, there is no excuse for disobedience. No good excuse. But more importantly, you can't hide from God. Jonah thinks he can in Tarshish. He'll make it so difficult that God wouldn't possibly expect him now to go to Nineveh. He's got the greatest excuse he could come up with. And he's removed himself as far from the presence of God's people and any reminder of anything right that he should be doing. He's went as far as he can go to the end, to the edge of the world. In his mind. The thing about it is, he never arrived. God didn't even let him get halfway there, I don't think. The scripture doesn't tell us how long it was before the storm came, but verse 4 we read this, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Now, we'll come back to verse 4 next week, but as we conclude, we need to understand this. When I say you can't hide from God, we, we may intend to make it to the end of the world, Well, there's no reminders, but you know what God often does is He sends a storm after us. And He sent a storm after Jonah. And the storm caught up to the ship, and it caught up to Jonah. Jonah realizes it when it happens. We'll see this next week. But God oftentimes has to send out a storm to get us back on the right track to get us back moving in the right direction. God turned Jonah around. He said, Jonah, you, you, you shouldn't be running from me. You need to be running to me. You need to be running where I send you, Jonah. So here's what I'm going to do, Jonah. I'm going to turn you around. And you have no say in it. You may not want to be turned around, but God said, I'm going to turn you around, Jonah. And so God sent a storm. I would guess that most everybody here this morning has endured a similar storm once or twice in their life, if not more. 
We're out of the will of God, running away from God, disobeying God, and wondering why you're having all the problems that you're having. Wondering why the storm clouds are gathering and the winds are picking up. God sent more than a few storms into your life and mine as well. He sent those storms after us to turn us around because we're running in the wrong direction. That's what he did here. You can lie to yourself. You can come up with the greatest excuses in the world, which are not excuses at all. You can think you've hid yourself perfectly from God when you haven't. You've deceived yourself. And now you've got to deal with the storm. I hope that if you're dealing with the storm right now, this might be the moment that you change direction. There may be a different direction you should be going. A different way you should be living. Some disobedience you need to forsake. Now, if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then that certainly is true. And God even uses storms to reach people that don't believe in Him. Just like He uses storms to keep us, His people, on the right path. Embrace the storm. Accept it for what it is. Yield to its power. Put God on the throne. You'll never regret it. <laughs>